We've been talking over the last uh, few weeks about how we interact with God and particularly about how we try to tell God some lies. We don't really succeed ever in deceiving God. He knows it all. So we don't trick him. When we lie to God, we're really trying to trick ourselves. We tell God these lies because we're trying to convince ourselves that that's okay. That the, the way we want things to be is actual, it's real, instead of the way God intends things and the way he orchestrates things. And so in this journey, it's, it's about us becoming fully who God wants us to be. And that means setting some of these lies and deception aside because they don't, they don't influence the Lord in terms of tricking him. And if anything, they only influence the Lord in that they keep him farther away from us than we want him to be. The lie I want to talk about today is that the lie of I'm not really doing anything right now. I'm not doing anything important. And that means that I have all kinds of time and energy and passion to give to other things besides the Lord. And so we're going to look at this. We've been looking at these different lives through the lens of these Old Testament people. These people from Scripture who tried these kinds of things. And sometimes they tried them in, in ways that were way more monumental than we tried to. And so it's easy to pick that out. And uh, we're going to continue on with that today because we're going to be dealing with and, and pulling from the life of King Solomon, the son of King David. But as we get into that, I want you to think about this because this is really the heart of the lie of I'm not really doing anything important right now. You see, God asks us He deeply desires of us that we would make him the most important thing in our lives. And we say that in several different ways. God wants to be the center. God wants to be king. He wants to be Lord of our lives. And and God wants that. He wants us to pursue him and have passion for him above everything else. And in fact, he spelled that out in the Old Testament with the people coming out of slavery in Egypt when he gave them the Ten Commandments. And the first commandment was, I'm the Lord your God, you shall have no other gods but me. Don't worship anything but me. And so he wants us to make him the most important. But we try to tell him that, you know, Lord, we can fit you in with the other stuff in my life. I can, I can have you, but I still want this other stuff that's really important to me that I care a lot about. And the Lord really does not play well with other idols. He doesn't tolerate other stuff that we worship. It brings us into conflict. So the lie is that we, that we try to tell God is that we tell him that we can have him. You are welcome to come in. We can handle that. But we want more than just you. We want you and all these other pieces and things. And the, the, the terrible truth is we tend, when we bring other things in, we tend to start to worship and love them more than the Lord. So we're going to look at that a little bit this morning. So here's the story of King Solomon. Let me give you a little bit of setup. If you're not familiar with him and the Old Testament stories about him, He's the son, I said, of King David. And King David was the greatest, the mightiest king of Israel. And King David was known for his ability as a warrior. He went and waged war against the nations around him and and won for the people of Israel this prominent 
political position that everyone now had to factor him in. You can't just dismiss these children of Israel that have been kind of scattered and slaves. But now they've become a real nation and they're a nation that has military might. Now there was a cost to that. David, we were told, was a man after God's own heart. That's what scripture tells us about. That's how they define him. He was a man who loved the Lord. And even though he loved the Lord that much, David made the same mistake. If you look at the life of David, his family was a disaster. His family was a mess. He married way too many women. And we're going to find that about his son too. And then there was this conflict within his family, like you know, you're going to have when you have multiple wives and children from multiple wives. But really, the issue for David that kept him from doing what he really wanted to do for God was the fact that he was a warrior. He wanted to build the temple. He was now king in Jerusalem. He had the land. He had political dominance. He had the economy. He had brought the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. And he said, God, I want to build a permanent structure, no longer a tabernacle. I want to build a building where your Ark of the Covenant can sit and we will be reminded when we look up the hill at that building that God is here with us. And God said, thanks, but no. And in fact, he says to King David, you have blood on your hands because you have waged all these wars. And I want someone whose hands are pure to build my temple. And so he tells David before he dies, it won't be you, but it will be your son. And David passes away and King Solomon comes to reign. And If there's anything you remember about King Solomon, if I were to quiz you probably right away, you guys will remember that King Solomon was known for his wisdom. He was the wisest king. When the Lord came and spoke to him and appeared to him and said, Solomon, what do you want me to do? What do you want from me? Solomon asked for wisdom. Make me wise. Above being wealthy, above being powerful, above being popular, Make me wise. And so we hear these stories during Solomon's early reign where he uses this wisdom of God and he judges things and he leads the people in great ways. But something happens along the way. And I would just suggest to you, especially for those of us like me, as we're reaching into the second half of our lives or even into the twilight years of our lives, There's a temptation to forget what happened early on and how much we love the Lord and how we relish the promises of God. And as we move later into life, we kind of get a little bit jaded and bitter and we realize that perhaps our influence is waning. And Solomon gets to this place in life and, and Solomon's profound weakness was women. And God had given specific instructions to the children of Israel about marriage, not because he didn't like women and he didn't like the people being married, but because he knew that if you partner up with people from these other tribes, you're going to start to worship their gods. So this is where we pick up the story in 1 Kings 11. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women. Besides Pharaoh's daughter, he married women from Moab, Ammon, Edom, Sidon, And from among the Hittites, the Lord had, look at this, the Lord had clearly instructed the people of Israel, you must not marry them because they will turn your hearts to their gods. There we see it. That's the reason he didn't want this intermarriage. 
Yet Solomon insisted on loving them anyway. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines. And I'm just, yeah, let's just take a moment because that's even, I don't know how you wrap your head around that. Um, if he had that much wisdom, I wonder where it went. Okay? But, but let's, not st- let's not get stuck there, okay? Because that just kind of hangs a lot of us up. But here's the thing. What is said next? In fact, they did turn his heart away from the Lord. That's exactly what happened. The Lord knew that's what would happen with Solomon. So that's what happened. In Solomon's old age, they turned his heart to worship other gods instead of being completely faithful to the Lord his God as his father David had been. Solomon worshipped Ashtoreth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. In this way, Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He refused to follow the Lord completely. There's that thing. Lord, I want you and I want to be able to worship other stuff. As his father had done. On the Mount of Olives, east of Jerusalem, he'd even built a pagan shrine for Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, Another for Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon built such shrines for all his foreign wives to use for burnt incense incense and sacrificing to their gods. Just make a little mental note of that. We're going to come back to that in a moment. The Lord was very angry with Solomon, for his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. He had warned Solomon specifically about worshiping other gods, but Solomon did not listen to the Lord's command. So now the Lord said to him, Since you have not kept my covenant and have disobeyed my decrees, I will surely tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your servants. But for the sake of your father, David, I will not do this while you're still alive. I will take the kingdom away from your son. And even so, I will not take away the entire kingdom. I will let him be king of one tribe for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, my chosen city. Now we might stop here and go, man, God is really inflexible. I mean, God just does not work with us, does he? Here is... Solomon, and he's married these other women. Probably many of them were political marriages so that you could have some kind of a treaty with these other countries. And Solomon, you know, he's trying to honor these wives in their own religions. And, you know, Solomon would be the guy that on the back of his chariot, on the bumper of his chariot, he would have a coexist bumper sticker. But here's the trouble. When, when you read this and you hear about Molech being the detestable god of the Ammonites, these two gods being detestable gods, what you need to understand was a central part of the worship of these idol gods was human sacrifice. And so the worship of these gods involved people bringing their own children and killing them as a sacrifice. So here is Solomon who's erecting uh, altars who's erecting places of worship to these gods where his, where his own children and the children of those he has married into 
are going to be killed. And so you can understand that God sees this and says, you know, this is not what I want. It's not what I want for the children of Israel. Certainly, I've, I've told you about that, but it's also not what I want for the people of those nations. Not because he hated the Ammonites or the Moabites or whoever it was, but because he loved them and he realized that their worship did things to them that were harmful and detestable. And so in that, God has said, don't go there. Just, just segregate yourselves in a positive sense of the word. Just come away from them and be different and they will be drawn to you because you are different and because you are blessed by me. And I think that's a word for us today because we live in a day and age where a lot of people, they use this terminology of, I love Jesus, but... And usually it has something to do with their conduct. So you've probably seen, maybe you haven't, but there are t-shirts online you can order. I love Jesus, but I cuss a little. And there's other vices that, I love Jesus, but I... And probably the most famous statement about this was done on the Ellen DeGeneres show. She called this lady up who had written to her. And she called this lady up. She was in the deep south, so she has a southern draw. You can go on YouTube and look it up. And she's talking to the lady. And, and the lady, you realize fairly soon in that her words are a little bit slurred and she's been drinking. And so halfway through the conversation, she just interrupts Ellen DeGeneres. And she goes, you know, Ellen, I've got to tell you something. I love Jesus, but I drink a little. And the, the, I mean, the whole audience just erupts because it's kind of obvious that she's a little intoxicated. And she's trying to justify this. And, and so it's, it's hilarious, but at the same time, it's heartbreaking. And we, we do this too, though. We say, you know, Jesus, I love you, but I also want to have this other stuff. You see, we want the blessing of following Jesus Christ. We want to be able to call on him when work goes badly, when I'm not ready for that test in school, when I've had a fight with my wife, when, you know, and we can go on and on. I want to be able to say, Jesus, help me. I want that kind of blessing. But I'm really not that interested in the kind of surrender that comes with that. Because when I say, well, Jesus, I want you, he has a tendency to say, okay, then you get all of me, and there's not any room for much else. So we want that blessing, but we really want to be able to deny the surrender. We don't want to give up control. We certainly don't want to give him autonomy or authority, because I want to have the freedom to go, but you know what, I really want this too. And I will just tell you, this is a lifelong battle. So for those of you who think, you know, when I get a little bit older, I won't have to deal with this. I'll have it settled. You get older, and it's other things that come along. Other temptations you weren't expecting. So we become committed. We say, God, I'm committed to you, but not really. I mean, I'm committed, but not, I mean, I'm committed, but not like Matt Gray is committed. Because Matt Gray, you know, he's just pulled up stakes here in Wichita and he's getting ready to go to the mission field and he's going to do these awesome things over there. But that's not for me, God, because I still need my stuff. I still need the things in my life. Well, I would just suggest to you, 
that God's not going to ask every one of us to go and do translation work in Mexico. But he is going to ask all of us to make him king. He's going to ask all of us to make him Lord. I want to share a passage of scripture with you from James chapter 1 that helped me understand how God wants me to commit fully to him. And so this is what James writes. If you need wisdom, ask our generous God and he will give it to you. He will not rebuke you for asking. So, okay, let me just stop here. Does this sound like Solomon who asked for wisdom? If you ask for wisdom from God, he will give it and he won't hold us back. He's a generous God. But when you ask him, be sure that your faith is in God alone. There it is. Okay. Do not waver for a person with divided loyalty is unsettled as a wave in the sea that is blown and tossed by the wind. Such people should not expect to receive anything from the Lord. Their loyalty is divided between God and the world and they are unstable in everything they do. I memorized this verse in another version years and years ago and that last line is a, a man with a divided mind is unstable in all his ways. In another version. And it doesn't just apply to men. So, Here's the thing. When we say, God, I want this. I want your blessing. I want you to give me wisdom. I want you to give me time. I want you to give me peace. I want you to give me relationships with people who are going to make my life better. I want you to heal my marriage. I want you to make things great at work. I want you to help me excel at school. But... Anytime we add that but behind there, I just expect God to go, Mm-mm. no. God is not some kind of cosmic vending machine where if we punch the right button, we get the right thing that shoots out to us that we really want. God wants us, all of us, Every part of us. And Solomon's problem was he had this incredible opportunity and he asked of God, give me wisdom, which was incredibly noble. And he asked for something that was going to help his people and ushered in the era of of economic dominance for the people of Israel. During Solomon's era, their wealth grew exponentially and he was able to build the temple in the most beautiful ways with gold overlay and the cedars of Lebanon and things like that. But Solomon's problem was he didn't want to let go of the things that took a hold of his eyes. And here's the problem. And I found this, and some of you I know have experienced this. What catches our eye is what will catch our heart soon after that. You see, years ago, when I was a college student, I needed a job. I needed to make a little bit of money, and so I went and I applied for one job, and I worked at that for a while. I really didn't enjoy it. And then I heard there was a job open in the kitchen in the dining commons, and so I went there, and they, they made me a, kind of a short-order chef. We did the grill. And so I was flipping burgers and making French fries, and my friend Larry and I did it together. And little did I know that 
they were going to be looking for some guys to help with the cash registers in the dining commons because up to that point it had been all, all girls. They didn't want guys behind the cash register. It was a little bit um, prejudiced, maybe. But here's what happened. Donna, the gal that ran the, the cash registers for the dining commons, went to the gals that worked at the cash register and said, hey, we need some guys because we get these big football players coming through and they eat tremendous amounts of food and they don't like to pay for it. And so they were kind of pilfering some stuff. They were, they were taking what they weren't paying for. And she said, I need some guys who when these football guys come through, they won't try to trick them and flirt with them and weasel out of paying for their meal. So she went to the gals that were working, the students that were working there, and said, which guys would be good guys to have here? And so these gals got to hand pick, and somebody said my name. <laughs> now you know who it was. <laughs> I set her up. In any case... Donna Stockstill came to me and said, hey, I, I would like you to consider moving out of the kitchen and into the cash register. And we're like, if I don't have to have grease all over me, that'd be great. So we did. And then I saw this gal. And, you know, right away, which, which dorm do you live in? What's your major? What are you doing Friday night? <laughs> she caught my eye. And apparently I'd caught hers. And soon after that, she had my heart. And I'm thankful because God brought somebody along into my life that I really needed and somebody who shared these values and who loved Jesus as much as I do and at times more. And, and I'm glad. But here's the thing. The one who caught my eye had their eyes on Christ. Now, that was just in terms of relationship for us, and for us, a lifelong relationship and a beautiful one. But there are other things that have caught my eye. There have been cars in the used car lot. Here's one that we don't talk about very much. There have been churches that I was never appointed to, and I thought, if only I could pastor that church, how impressive would I be? For some of us, it's that house in that other subdivision that catches our eye. For some of us, it's that co-worker who shows us a little bit more attention than the others. And we can go on and on with the things that catch our eye because, you see, what catches our eye is what's going to have our heart eventually. So we need to be careful. You see, when we do this, what we start actually doing is we start giving little parts of ourselves away. And that's exactly what happened with me and Kayleen. You know, soon I was going, you know what, I'm going to walk back to the dorm this way on campus because she's going to be coming out of that building from that class. And if I time this right, even though I may be late for class, I'll get to go, hey, how are you doing? And I started to watch where she sat in, in college chapel because I thought, you know, if I get there early and she's not there, I'll just sit kind of in that section and maybe I'll at least be close to her. And then, of course, eventually, you know, we coordinated pretty well. 
And so at first it was just little, little things that took me out of the easiest path and took a little bit of my time. And so instead of studying a little bit harder on Friday night, we're going to Dairy Queen. First date was at Dairy Queen. It's a good place. Um, but here's the thing. I started giving her little bits of my time and little bits of my attention, and those little bits became bigger and bigger and bigger. And before we knew it, you know, she had a huge chunk of my time and my attention. And after about nine months of that, I realized that I wanted her to have the majority of my time here on earth. I wanted her to be my wife for my life because she captured my heart. And so I started by giving little bits of time and attention and a little bit of my money for a date or a movie. And after about nine months, ten months, I said, you know, I want to give you a ring. <laughs> See, that's what we do with other things in life. We start giving little bits of ourselves. I can do this. I can, I can invest a little bit here. I can, I can give a little bit of my time away. I can give a little bit of my energy. I can give a little bit of my money to this. And then the next thing we know, we're all in. A little grows, and instead of little parts of ourselves, we begin to give the majority of ourselves. And here's the thing, when we do that to several different things, when we have this attention deficit disorder with our love, we become faithful to no one or no thing. Because as soon as the new thing or the new person comes along and catches our attention, I'm out of here. I'm going to pursue this now. And we just try another thing. We try it with another person. We try it at another job. We, we're ready to go to the next and the next and the next. And I would just suggest to you, our attention span with regard to our emotions, our commitment with regard to our emotions is seriously hindered when we keep moving on to something else. Whether it's a new job, whether it's a new, whether it's a new spouse, whether it's a new church or a new pastor, whether it's a new car, you can go on and on. Americans are captivated by something new. And as we do that, successively, we do something that is distinctly unholy. We do something that defies the commitment of God to us that would come and die for us, a God who would live for us, who would say, I will be your God, and you can abide in me forever. And we go, maybe the next 10 minutes, because football's coming on. So here's what I want to suggest to you. As people who want to pursue Christ, as people who go, you know what, I'm all in for Jesus, we need to do a little bit of re-examining of our priorities and our passion. Do we really want Jesus or do we want the byproduct of having Jesus? Do we really want him or do we want the other stuff that comes with having him? See, if we really want Jesus, we have to do the work of clearing things out for him. And I was recently talking to one of you about the, the, the act of fasting. And, and whether it's giving up a meal or giving up an activity. If we're giving up a meal because we want to lose weight, that's not fasting. That's weight loss. But if we're giving up on something because we want to create space for God, that's fasting. 
If we're clearing things out because we say, okay, God, let's get all this clutter, all the things that I've given my time and attention and my love to, let's get all these things out of the way so we can just have you. See, here's the thing. We tend to overlook small things until small things do great damage. Small things, these little things that we entertain for a while become big things and then they hurt us. And the, the best way I know how to explain this is to talk about this in terms of doing a FOD walk down. Does anybody here know what a FOD walk down is? Sid's not here this morning. Bill knows. Aviators know what this is. You see, on an aircraft carrier where you have these huge, powerful fighter jets that take off of a ship and land on a ship. Any little piece of debris on the deck is dangerous. Those huge jet engines are so powerful, they will suck it up, and it will go through the jet engine and rip that engine apart. And when you're trying to take off of a ship, you don't get very many second chances. The end of the runway is water. And so they have to clear everything. They have to go over that deck, that flight deck. And what they do is everybody who works on the flight deck lines up. And if you know anything about aircraft carriers, the different people wear different colors depending on what they do, depending on what their task is. But you see these guys with shirts of all these different colors, men and women, people of different ranks. Occasionally you even see the pilots walking with them because, you know, who cares more about this than a pilot who's about to go into the drink. And they walk the deck with their heads down, sometimes two or three rows deep, and they pick up every little thing that might be laying there. And some of those things they pick up specifically and they put them in Ziploc bags so they can figure out where that little thing came from. Because not only do you want little things going through, you don't want to be dropping little things off of a high-performance jet. This is what it looks like. So in terms of spirituality, I think we need to do this from time to time where we line up together and we do this walk where we give attention to the space in our lives and we say, Lord, anything that does not belong here that is not of you, anything that might cause, however significant it may seem, anything that causes damage, I will find it, I will pick it up, and I will throw it away. This is it. Looks like they're just having a stroll to anybody who is not, uh, there you go, found a little piece of paper. Anyone who's not familiar with this, this may not seem like anything significant before, but before any of those planes are going to be launched, they're going to clear the decks and say, okay, we're good to go. Little for, FOD, by the way, is a foreign object of damage. There are foreign objects in our lives that would cause great damage that at the time we think is just terribly insignificant. But if God brings our attention to it, it's significant. You see, part of keeping the debt clear is not just, I mean, there's those big chunky things that we know, we know is going to hurt. We know when we mistreat people. That's going to be bad. We know when we commit adultery, that's going to be bad. We know when we outright defy God. But then there's those things that we think are actually pretty good. And so it's not just making sure that foreign things that don't belong with God, but it's also making sure that things just aren't cluttered. 
They're cleared out. And where and why we invest ourselves is significant. You see, our motives have a lot to do with this because we need to leave this space for God and if our motives are impure, it becomes a foreign object. So I want to uh, suggest to you, I went by, oh, I'm going to get to a quote here in a moment. I want to suggest to you that God wants to be our first and only love. And maybe not first in that it was before anything else, but first in the priority. It moves to the top of the list. And in fact, as it moves to the top of the list, stuff just falls off the bottom of the list because as it moves to the top, it increases in font size and pushes other things out of the way. And so things that were previously really important to us, we start to go, okay, don't need it, don't need it, don't need it. In the Old Testament, God asked the people of Israel once a year to do what they called the Feast of First Fruits, where whatever they had first in harvest, whether it was from their livestock, whether it was from their grain, whether it was from oil that they got from the olives, your first fruits, the stuff that you get first, bring it to me. Before you eat any of it, before you sell any of it, before you do anything else with it, give it to me. Give me the first fruits. And I think there's something psychologically significant to that because if we do that first, we reinforce in our minds and in our hearts that we put what God asks first before anything else. For some of us, we have developed a pattern of giving financially where we go, you know what, before I pay a bill, I'm going to tithe. I'm going to give to the church. I'm going to give to the work of God. And I'll be honest with you, that helps us out to pay to keep the lights on, things like that. But it helps you out in terms of being reminded every time you get a paycheck that I'm going to put God above everything else in my life. It's a spiritual act of clearing the decks. And here's the thing. When we make that kind of sacrifice, it deepens our commitment over time. So every time I do that and I go, yep, yep, going to do it for God first. I'm going to do what God wants first. I am reminding myself and I'm reinforcing to myself that I'm going to give God the best, the first, because I love him more than anything else. But here's the thing. When we're tempted to take something else in and go, you know, I can, I can do that. I can, I can marry myself to something that is not of God. That temptation opens us up. Temptation in itself is not evil. Temptation, however, is opportunity. It's opportunity for us either to recommit that I'm going to pursue God with my heart or opportunity for us to walk away, to turn aside. A couple of quotes for you. T.S. Eliot, who is not necessarily known for his uh, spiritual walk but has some great writings, says, The last temptation is the greatest treason. To do the right deed for the wrong reason. And I, I know I need to be reminded of that. We need to be reminded of that because we do all the right stuff around here, right? We, we help the homeless at Family Promise. We feed the hungry down at Food Pantry at Rivercrest. And, and we, we love the kids and we teach them about Jesus and kids' ministry here. And, and we help the teenagers through our youth ministry we do here. And we can go on and on and on. But I would suggest to you that Elliot hit on something when he said, you know, you can do the right things, but if you're doing it for the wrong reason, that's a temptation. That's giving our heart to something else even though we're doing the right things with our hands. And 
And then Oswald Chambers, who is a man who is a very godly man and wrote profoundly, said, temptation comes to me suggesting a possible shortcut to the realization of my highest goal. Temptation is not something we can escape. In fact, it is essential to the well-rounded life of a person. So if you've been listening to me and you go, you know, God, you just got to take away my desire for that house, that car, that, that position, that relationship. God is going to allow you to wrestle with those things because he wants you to make the commitment to him. I want to invite our, oh, coming back to first and only love. Temptation is opportunity. It's opportunity to honor him or it's opportunity to turn away from him. And so as you walk through these things, and you're probably processing in your heart right now, where, God, have I fallen in love with something else? I would ask you to examine that and examine your motives and the purity of your heart in doing these things together with us.